Oh, welcome back, everybody. We really appreciate you coming back again this weekend. Rick Wagner getting it right on KNZZ KGLN. That's 1192.7 on KNZZ and 980 and 101.3 on KGLN. And, of course, we're on the Internet and various other places, the ships at sea, of course, you never want to forget, and so forth. So thanks a lot for joining us here. I think we have a good show today. Uh, I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I was calculating – you know, when I might be able to retire, given the stock market and the fantastic economy that Biden has. You know, uh, he says every time he turns around that, you know, my plan is working. You know, I'm really afraid of that. I'm, I'm really afraid his plan is working. Actually, I, I think our economy is more resilient than his plan, but that doesn't mean we need to get him out of there. We don't want to test it anymore. But I figured that, let's see, the way things are going now, I I might be able to re- consider retiring probably in the sometime in the second term of the Buttigieg administration. Now, there will be two terms of the Kamala Harris administration before we get to Pete Buttigieg's presidency, but I, I think the beginning of his second term, thinks he's going this way, I might be able to live in a cardboard box if the box isn't too expensive. So, uh, you know, it's good to know. It's good to know these things. But uh, how are you guys doing out there? Uh, we've had some interesting weather here in Colorado, and for people listening on the Internet, depending where you're at, a lot of places have had some tough weather when it comes to snow. You know, out in California, it's kind of an interesting thing. California has been supposedly having and has been having a drought for a little while, a few years off and on. And one of the problems that they have with that is they don't store any water anymore, which is really interesting. It's the same thing that we look at when we see their highway system. It's it's sad thing, you know, and Victor Davis Hansen talks about this a lot, is that you're looking at a state that in the 60s up into through the 70s and almost into the 80s especially, uh, when it came to the highway system, they were leading the world in highway construction and innovative techniques, uh, the cloverleaf. Uh, we don't hate, we hate them sometimes, but uh, they were innovative in the, in some of these Difficult areas to navigate. They, they did all sorts of crazy things. The I-5 out there. You know, starting at about the latter part of the 70s, they just kind of slowed down. And then into the 80s, it just wasn't doing very well. And then since then, it's done nothing but really stand still when it comes to highway construction. And despite the fact that our people are leaving that state pretty quickly, the population has grown immensely since the 70s and early 80s. So they have a lot more people, a lot more traffic, and a lot more of that traffic driving further distances. And they really have done nothing to promote that. Now, of course, we all know that you should transport yourself, perhaps by bicycle. Now, if you're Pete Buttigieg, you get to have someone drive you somewhere, like to the driveway, and then you get to ride your bicycle up the driveway. But most people, I mean, don't travel that way. And, gee, if you got got to work bicycle, uh, scooter, you know, that kind of stuff just isn't working for you. So these guys have not been putting anything into their highway system. And the big thing about it, of course, is that this lack of construction leads to all sorts of ancillary problems. It leads to choked up systems. It leads to auto accidents. It leads to problems with trucking. Then you factor in the second part that I really should have talked about first, which is their lack of storage for water. California, and any of you that have seen Chinatown, which is a cool movie, but it's hard to make any sense out of what's going on. It is revolving around the efforts of California, starting in the 30s, to bring water down through aqueduct systems 
uh, from the Sierra Nevada into Los Angeles and places where people live. Because, you know, most of the water in California falls in the northern and northeastern part of the state. And most of the people live along the coast, the south, you know, in that area, even the Imperial Valley and the Inland Empire, places like that. And there's not nearly as much water there. So the idea, and it was the right idea, was to create a big storage system, a lot of dams and reservoirs and then aqueduct systems to bring that water down from where the water was to where the people were. I know, it's it's amazingly hard to figure that out, isn't it? And they just stopped doing it. Uh, I don't think they've built a major reservoir since like 86 or something in that state because they don't want to dam the rivers. You know, they need to let them flow. So tremendous amounts of water that should be in storage and used for lean times has been flowing into the ocean. And at the same time, they complain about the climate change. Well, look, the only climate that's really changed in California significantly is the climate in Sacramento, which is, of course, the capital. It's not Los Angeles, like people guess, on like Jeopardy. Not Jeopardy, excuse me, but on like family, <laughs> the family feud. What's changed is, is that there's no longer an idea for actual progress. It's full of progressivism, but no actual progress. So the roads are terrible. They don't have water diversion. They can't get water to the places where they grow food and where people are moving or have moved, I guess. And we're not going to see enough people move out of there to make that much difference right away. And so the state is in in a real problem. And now they have huge snowfall out there. And, you know, it's caused some real problems up in the mountain areas like around Mammoth and like Arrowhead and places like that in California. You know, they got like 10 feet of snow. Well, it's really hard on the people up there. But theoretically, if you had storage, this would be a good thing. Right. Get those reservoirs filled. I mean, people at Lake Mead would like to see something like that and and get things moving again, you know, in terms of the water from where the people are not at. But the water is to where the water is not at. But the people are they don't have the ability to do that. It's fascinating to see this uh, close both eyes to reality kind of thinking going on. A lot of states are a little bit like that now here in Colorado. We've been getting like that for a few years. Some of the other people out there listening in other states can probably see some signs of it, too. It's uh, it's a technical term. It's called being an idiot. Uh, it's, called, it's called being so uh, enmeshed in an ideological idea that you don't have any idea what's going on in reality. And so, you know, you uh, are saving the world by starving everybody. It's, it's, a, it's, it's maniacal is what it ends up being. And it, the science of it is really not even there and uh, we could go into that again we've talked about it before but it, it's interesting to see and seeing all this excess water piling up in california and causing problems my thought always is well at least if they had the storage capacity it would be great for that but they don't so they just get the problems from all the excess moisture in the snowfall and no way to store it and use it for anything i, I mean I, I don't know how you can sit and look at that and think that you're on the right track you know Anyway, so in the next segment, assuming I get all the buttons pushed properly here, we're going to have, a, I hope some, I know it's going to be interesting, actually. We're going to have an author on, uh, Mike Moyer. Now, um, Professor Moyer teaches uh, military history at Hillsdale College and has quite the resume. He's taught at the Marine Corps uh, Military College. He's taught at, uh, let's see, his, his, he's been a student at Cambridge. He's taught a number of places, and the forward to this book we're going to discuss about, I believe, well, it's been reviewed, actually. It's been reviewed by Victor Davis Hanson, uh, who we just mentioned very favorably, who really knows what he's talking about. And it's about the Vietnam War, and he's 
he's trying to write a trilogy, and he's finished two of them and has a new one out. And we have a lot of Vietnam veterans listening out there. We have a lot of history buffs listening out there. And we have a lot of people that would like to see the uh, things that were happening right now through the lens of what's happened in the past because, of course, that's how you can make predictions. And the Vietnam War is a really fascinating war that has a lot to do with politics, uh, the way we fight insurgency, and good and bad decisions. And so he originally wrote a book. Uh, let's see, the original one he wrote, the one he started out was uh, Triumph Forsaken. And that is about the Vietnam War from 1954 to 1965. And then he's written a new one uh, called, I want to make sure I get the, the title right, um, it is Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 68. Uh, the 54 one I probably is especially interesting, too, because it takes a period and a place that most people don't really know about. And I know only a little about it because I ran into a fellow, uh, a retired gentleman, who retired and was doing some other things, who had been in the first special forces group in Vietnam. And I think he went there in 58 or something like that. Uh, and was talking about the country and uh, what Saigon looked like and what they were doing there. I had a couple of conversations with him, and it really piqued my interest because here's something that we really know very little about. And so his new book's out. So uh, once again, his name's Mark Moyer, M-O-Y-A-R, and he is uh, going to be available on Amazon for both of these books, and I think you'd be really enjoyed it. Hopefully getting one. All right, everybody, thanks for waiting, and welcome back. And as I mentioned, we have uh, a guest I'm really interested in talking to today, uh, Professor Mark Moyer, who is a military historian. He teaches at Hillsdale College. He has a, a really interesting resume that I was I was just reading here a moment ago. It's hard to even go through it, so many things. I know that uh, you taught at the Marine Corps University, I see, and then joined the Special Operations uh, JSOC there at uh, – Texas A&M. Oh, that's a Texas A&M. I've, hmm. And that's uh, just, you know, it's so fascinating to t- teach that kind of thing, I think, to people who are very interested in it. Because, unfortunately, war is, any kind of piece of it is very important in history. I mean, it is, uh, it literally is the defining factors of certain eras, unfortunately, from time to time. So, welcome to the show. I, we appreciate that. And he's written a book I wanted to talk about. And... Uh, it's called uh, Triumph Regained, and it is about the Vietnam War. And we have a lot of Vietnam War veterans out there that listen and people that are interested in history and military history in particular. Uh, so I thought it would be a great opportunity to have him on. And, you know, Vietnam War has been looked at so many different ways from so many different kinds of lenses, but it's still hard to bring into focus exactly what happened. And... Uh, Professor Moyer, I, I see you're trying to do that. This is part of a trilogy you wrote, is it correct? Yes, it's the second volume. The first volume was uh, Triumph Forsaken, and it is aiming to be comprehensive history and one, I think, that incorporates a lot of new information that people haven't seen before and also, I think, looks at what I think is a more objective light because the early – most of what we've heard initially from Vietnam was, I think, very – biased in, in partisan ways. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're being kind when you say that. I think that uh, a lot of it was, uh, there were so many factors that seemed to me, it was, there were political pieces of it, which of course seemed to triumph in all of this stuff, speaking of that. But also, I mean, we had some serious failures of leadership and tactics there that no one wanted to acknowledge. 
And so a lot of that got swept under the rug, too. Uh, you know, a lot of misuse of uh, forces over there, special special forces people, uh, a very strange conglomeration of allies, and uh, if you can call uh, the relationship between the South Vietnamese and the Montagnards uh, allies, uh, just a very fascinating, uh, it's surprised it held together as well as it did, and, you know, I was uh, a student a bit of uh, Sir Robert Thompson. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Oh, yes, yeah, sure. He was one of the more uh, intellectual of the observers over there, and he, in many respects, was correct. He, um, I think, understood better than a lot of others the sort of cultural problems we faced. There was a lot of um, naivete, which I think we've seen again when we went to Iraq and Afghanistan, of just how some cultures were, were different from ours. But in terms of you know, distorting history, I think the biggest reason we have this distortion is that most of the history has been written by people who didn't go to Vietnam and some of whom had actually avoided the draft. And so we're trying to justify that decision. And if you talk to Vietnam veterans, as I often do, most of them have a very different view of the war and more positive in some respects. But also, they believe, as I think, as I argue in the book, that there were opportunities to uh, win either decisively or at least set the conditions for victory that uh, the civilian politicians ended up turning down. Well, I think that people forget that uh, warfare, and it doesn't matter if uh, you're fighting with Caesar in Gaul or if you're fighting in North Africa, uh, you wish to destroy the enemy's ability and desire to fight. And that sometimes requires a commitment to destruction. And we seem like we never wanted to make that commitment to uh, have sort of a destructive war in a shortened form that probably in the end saves lives than it is to, to drag it out. What did you think of the uh, bombing campaign uh, up to North Vietnam and trying to destroy, destroy the supply routes through the neighboring countries? And we sort of abandoned that at some point, didn't we? Yeah, well, the military leadership generally was arguing that the way Lyndon Johnson and Robert McNamara are trying to fight the war is just to fight within South Vietnam. And that means you're never able to destroy the sources of the enemy's power, which are in North Vietnam. Now, there's this bombing campaign, but McNamara from early on has this policy that he calls gradual escalation. That is basically we start off at a low level and gradually increase it mainly as a bargaining tool because he sees it as not really being that important militarily, which the military also doesn't buy that. They know that if you bomb a lot of uh, the enemy's infrastructure and transportation and so forth, that you will cause a lot of harm. And then also McNamara downplays the idea of infiltrating or uh, of uh, severing the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, which also turns out to be a big disaster. And then thirdly, he they opposed the idea of sending American troops into North Vietnam. And that one is a little bit more understandable because they were concerned that China might intervene. But we now know from the Chinese sources that China never had any intention of fighting in North Vietnam because they had been clobbered in the Korean War and they wanted no more part of the U.S. military. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we were still haunted, I suppose, by the the idea of uh, the Chinese flying across the uh, the Yellow River uh, in right. North Vietnam, and thought that was a a real possibility, um, you know, and that was the the whole sort of misadventure with uh, uh, MacArthur up there. But so I guess we were haunted by that, and I, I think one of the things that's important about books like yours is that. You know, there, these things don't exist in a vacuum. You know, it's that you're just discussing that. You know, we were worried about what China might do. I mean, we know a little better now, but we just had come out of the Vietnam, I mean, the, the Korean conflict not that long ago and, uh, you know, more than a decade ago. And we, you know, we'd assumed that might happen again. And our supply lines are a long ways away. We learned some lessons in. Korea about that. And so I, yeah, I'm, I'm like you. I, I think I understand that and a lot of our listeners do. But we, we had so many assets over there in, with air power and with the substantial ground forces to do, to do a lot of things. And we, we seem to just not do them well. And then we had bad reporting. I mean, you know, the Tet Offensive was actually a victory for the United States and it was portrayed over here as some sort of weird defeat. Boy, there's a lot of factors that, that really have to look at to see if, if they're still infecting us today and, and our ability to go forward, don't you? Yeah, it's a very complex war. And you know, within the confines of South Vietnam, the American troops do very well. In fact, uh, in, in the book, I go through a lot of the battles of the period and show just how, in in almost every case, the Americans inflict these crushing defeats. And, and it was often believed in the U.S., especially among critics, that the, that we were exaggerating our own successes or the U.S. military was, but we now can see from North Vietnamese sources that, in fact, we were really uh, causing tremendous damage. And and that's one of the most important things in the book is that the, the amount of information we now have from North Vietnam. And, uh, and we've also learned that the bombing at one point does bring North Vietnam to the brink of defeat. Uh, the In 1967, Johnson agrees to increase the pace because there's uh, Senate hearings and the Senate is upset that the bombing is moving so slowly. But just as uh, North Vietnam is on the brink of starvation, they offer, there's a, a talk of a, a peace negotiation and Johnson lays off the bombing. Um, then peace never comes, but th- this gives the North the opportunity to rebound. Right. Was that Operation Rolling Thunder, or am I just projecting that into the? Screen? Yeah. So uh, Rolling Thunder is the uh, the operation. Yeah, is the bombing of North Vietnam. It gets suspended on a number of occasions because Johnson and even more so the liberal wing of his party argue that that the, if, if we will ease up on the North Vietnamese, and then they will negotiate with us. And the military is arguing the opposite. Well, no. If you the more pain you inflict, the more willing they're going to be to negotiate. And uh, so we have these bombing pauses that lead nowhere, and it's not until, in fact, and Nixon understands that you have to hurt the enemy to get them to negotiate. So he, he will escalate the bombing in 1972 and, in fact, does force the, uh, the enemy to agree to, to a peace deal, albeit temporarily. What do you think was the ultimate thought about the strategic significance of Vietnam for our involvement there? It obviously grew over time. I mean, and that sometimes happens in these things, but what do you think the original idea over strategic significance was there? Well, the, you know, the original idea was the so-called domino theory that if, if right. South Vietnam falls, then these other countries will fall to communism. And now that came under attack in, after the war, because in 75, 
most of the dominoes do not end up falling uh, with the major exception of Cambodian Laos and a couple million people get killed in right. Cambodia by the Khmer Rouge. But most these other countries don't. Yeah. And so that's taken as evidence that domino theory wasn't valid. But I argue, in fact, that it's because of the American intervention that, that you save most of the dominoes. And I go through what these other countries. The most important is, is Indonesia, which in, a, in the book I talk about, in, there's a showdown the end of 1965 between communists and anti-communists in Indonesia. And the anti-communists prevail and they attribute their victory to the fact that the Americans make this stand in Vietnam because without that, they would have just concluded that communism and China were going to overrun Asia. Right. Well, we're, we're almost out of time. And I'll tell you, this is an important book to understand history and project it into our modern situation. It's Triumph Regained, and it's by Professor Moyer. We'll give you a little more information in the next segment where you can pick it up. Professor, thanks so much for talking to us today. Well, hi, everybody. I'm back. Uh, hopefully, I'm not too much of a secret, secret agent. But, uh, hey, that was, a, that was a good interview. I really could spend enough time with Mark Moyer there, uh, Professor Moyer, the author of that soon-to-be trilogy and now two books uh, on the Vietnam War. I really find it interesting, and I don't think I did as good a job interviewing as I could have. I really – I had too many questions, and I was trying to sort through them, so – I, I'm anxious to get full copy of the book, and uh, I'm going to. And like I said, I think I mentioned before that uh, you can find that on Amazon and probably in uh, some of the bookstores if you have one in your town. Uh, remember, it's Mark Moyer, M-O-Y-A-R, and uh, it's Triumph Regained is his newest one. And the first one was Triumph Forsaken, about from uh, 54 to 65 in Vietnam, and this latest one's about from 65 to 68. And just really interesting time. And... And there's so many different reasons to read stuff like this. Not only does it sort of give you a view on the past that many of you out there were around and some of you participated in the Vietnam War, and I'm sure you would find it fascinating because he's such a really such a, a well-schooled expert on this. And uh, others that are interested because you'd like to see how these wars get conducted, what was done right, what was done wrong. And then, frankly, you can compare it to some of the things we're involved in right now or have been involved in the last couple of years and there's some similarities there in the thinking that goes on coming out of, uh, you know, the political side of things, the way it's affecting the military side of things that, uh, well, it, it's helpful to know, you know, it just uh, gives you some idea what's going on. So I encourage you to take a look at that. But while we're speaking about things like war and so forth, uh, let's talk about guns, because I wanted to bring this to everybody's attention, because so often when we have bills in the legislature, as you know me complaining about, if you listen very often, uh, we have nothing but uh, late news, right? Uh, we have things that come out, and we hear about them when they're either all the way through or after they've already become law. And, of course, that's part of the don't-get-the-yokels-stirred-up theory of government. Now, there's a bill right now, many of you are going to know this because you're very informed on this, but I really want to make sure the people that don't. It's a, it is an assault weapons ban. In other words, uh, a ban on semi-automatic rifles that they determine to be assault weapons in the legislature right now. I believe it's got out of the House. It's House Bill 23-1230. Okay? And I would kind of go through some of it for you. I mean, first of all, if you just read the Enabling Act about why they're doing it, about, oh, there's all these terrible shootings and they're all done, mass shootings, and of course there are terrible but banning assault weapons isn't the solution to it, at least not in my opinion, and most people that you know are familiar with this is that's not the problem. Nut jobs are the problems. 
uh, here's, here's what a little example of what's in the assault weapons and high capacity magazines were disproportionately used in public mass shootings and are assault weapons or high capacity magazines, uh, continue compared to 44% of those that involved a handgun. That's, uh, so the rest, what they're saying is they're disproportionately involved versus handguns, which of course, handguns will of course be next. Um, and, uh, they are uniquely lethal due to a tactical features that are designed for the battlefield uh, in order to injure or kill large numbers of people quickly and effectively. These tactical features different assault weapons from other firearms. These include detachable magazines, barrel shrouds. Yeah, that's right, because a barrel shroud is designed to, you know, make it more lethal, right? Yeah, okay. Pistol grips, forward grips, and telescoping scopes, which allow a shooter to either conceal the weapon or make it Easier to fire a high volume of ammunition in a short period of time while maintaining accuracy. All right. And, uh, they also are after 50 caliber rifles, by the way. And, uh, let's see. I, I'm, I've got a bunch of stuff written down here. Enough to say that pretty much everything that you might have on any type of AR type weapon you have or AK type weapon you might have or even Oh, geez, like an M1, A1 carbine, uh, or a, uh, M1 Garand, or any of these things are gonna fall under this stuff, right? You need to know about it. It's gonna have more trouble in the Senate getting through, even though there's a way disproportionate amount of people in the Colorado Senate that are Democrats. But I've already been reading a little bit, and there's a few, especially in the Senate, that are a little leery of this. After the 2013 debacle, remember when they passed some of the stuff and ended up having three people recalled. Now, I'm not so sure that'll happen again. They keep saying, well, we believe people out there aren't as wild up about it as they were. And, of course, one way you don't get people riled up about it is you don't make a big deal out of it, especially over here on the Western Slope where people really care about that. So that's what I'm telling you. You know, you need to be aware that's going on and write your senators, write everybody, email them, whatever you want to be, and... Get on this because I can tell from some of the reading I've been doing from the sort of back and forth or at the state capitol that they are kind of concerned about it. And if they get enough people to write in enough to be upset enough to where they think that, you know, these folks like yourself might actually go out, back candidates that are going to run against them, send money to candidates that might run against them. And remember, Sometimes, like where I'm at, we have a state senator that is just newly elected. Pretty safe seat if you look at the margin of her victory. And so you just thought, well, it'll be okay. Yeah, you know, Janice Rich, who here in my uh, jurisdiction in the state of Colorado, well, I'm, I'm completely certain she'll vote against this. So it doesn't mean that we can fall asleep because... There are people out there who are in more precarious positions that are Democrats in some of these areas that really would be worried about it if they got everybody riled up. So what they need to hear is say, look, if, if you vote for this, my Democrat friend, uh, I'm going to find out who's running against you in your district, even though I don't live in it, and I'm going to do what I can to support them because you're harming me in my district. So that tends to get their attention, too. They want you to stay asleep out there. They want you to think that, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. And they would prefer that you didn't know about it at all or didn't understand what they were doing. And so this is something I'm trying to bring to your attention. 
There's a couple, three, you know, weapons bills in just every time they want to raise the, the age to 21. That's another one. I mean, and then there's always the little nitpicking. There's the idea that if we just put bills in, like the storage bills we have and this and that, so that we can make really kind of very minor errors or what used to not be errors at all in uh, the upkeep or the storage of our weapons, turn you into a criminal. And then we can make sure you don't get a weapon again. And so it's it's not something that uh, is indicative of a legislature or a government that trusts its citizens in any way. And it also is indicative of a legislature that is beginning to fear its citizens and not fear of using high-capacity magazines against them, but that that the citizens are just getting restive out there and they would like to make sure they have a monopoly on all sorts of things. A monopoly on self on protection is really what they want. Uh, if you are not able to protect yourself in these situations, then you're even more reliant on government. And the more you rely on government, the better it is for them. We're not suggesting anybody be vigilantes out here, but it is proven time and time again, and I can tell you from my experience, is that you know, a criminal is more afraid of a homeowner armed with a firearm than he is a peace officer most of the time. Because you're in the homeowner's home if you're a burglar or something like that, and if, especially in Colorado, and if you're attempting to harm them in any way, uh, that can be a very bad situation for them. So a knowledge that, you know, everyone can be very well protected is a good way to prevent crime. And I know what the other side is going to say, well, we're not saying about handguns, this and that. Yeah, yeah, not now you're not. But I've heard enough rumblings that that there are some of these nuts out there that want to get rid of semi-automatic weapons, period. Handguns and long guns. As if they're new somehow. I know you've talked to me about that. I mean, I've talked about the history of the 1911-style 45, uh but you can also get in a 38 Super or a 9mm sometimes or now in 380. Uh, you can look go back before that to the Broomtail Mauser to other, the 1903 Colt. You know, semi-automatic handguns have been around for a while. And they didn't cause the kinds of problems that we see with shootings and gang violence and crazy people going in and slaughtering people. It didn't happen then. Something else is going on, and the desire to avoid discussing what's going on, which is usually some sort of incubation, in my opinion, uh, that goes on in certain cities and so forth where they have had such poor government policies that they have just wrecked part of the population. They have no, they see no way out. They look at the, their situation and see that, you know, the way they get out of it is Maybe sports, maybe crime, maybe, you know, some, maybe, maybe the music industry or something. And it, it's this culture dependency that seems to want to be, that they want to cultivate on the progressive side that, that makes people give up and, uh, feel like they have nothing to lose. And people have nothing to lose often turn to violence. And, you know, this is where we're seeing, so look at Chicago. Look at New York City. I mean, even, and look at California cities even. 
you know, and the kind of crime that they're having out there. Look at the shootings in, in uh, Chicago and New York. Look at Philadelphia. Look at Baltimore. I mean, this isn't, isn't because we invented semi-automatic handguns last year. This is something else going on. And because these progressive politicians are afraid, unwilling, or frankly, uh, it's too much in their interest to keep these crazy things going on and trying to buy votes that way by making people think it's actually making their life better when it's making their life worse in the long run, then no real attention gets paid to it. And this war on poverty that was supposed to address some of these issues is completely failed. People talk about the war on drugs. War on drugs is nothing compared to the war on poverty. Trillions of dollars have been spent on this since 1965, 66 in there with uh, LBJ's War on Poverty and the Great Society. We've done nothing but dump money into bad programs that have created nothing but more poverty or and localized it. And eventually, you start having problems with crime, drug abuse, and things like that when you create these poor dependent populations. These people, if given the right tools, can be just as successful as anyone else in these inner cities and stuff, and they're not. It's it's a terrible tragedy is what it is. And what's going on then fuels this idea that we need to stop weapons because uh, the crime is up in some in some way, with firearms, gun violence. I mean, I'm so tired of hearing gun violence. You know, the implication whenever we hear that is some of these guns are getting up in the morning. You know, they're coming out of your drawer and they're, you know, maybe maybe showering up a little gun oil and going out and committing a crime. It's nuts. It's it's a complete divorcement from personal responsibility for what's going on, and it ends up affecting law-abiding people much, much more than it ever affects people that are willing to commit crimes. Hey, if you're willing to go out and rob somebody with a gun or shoot someone, it's probably not the top thing in your head that you get a firearm. I mean, you're already going to do something that's a felony. And you're living in a dangerous world in some of these places. There's some of these people who are not criminals themselves, but would like to be able to protect themselves from these, from criminals in these horrible hot spots that Democrat ideas have created. And they'd like to have some protection. And that's perfectly understandable, too. So what a mess. And our legislature here in Colorado and your legislature in many places that are listening to this are out of their minds and they are fueled by national politics that are completely divorced from what's going on locally with them. And this country was never intended to have a national legislature. We have a national legislature in in one sense, in Congress, but it was never intended to run the individual lives of everybody in the states. That is not what federalism is all about. And now we have a massive intrusion over the last probably 40 years where everything is justified as an intrusive behavior by the federal government through some reinterpretation of the Commerce Clause or uh, the right to travel or any of these other things that, that keep getting, you know, either expanded or suddenly found in the Constitution, so that we have a vast reservoir of federal crimes and acts that never were intended by the framers or anybody up until the 60s and 70s, probably the 70s, to be applied in that kind of way from Washington to people living in Idaho or Colorado or, you know, Indiana. You're supposed to have 
your own government for many of these things to make these decisions. And they're being taken away. And then the ones that aren't being taken away, we see local and state politicians wildly influenced by national politics ready to implement these ideas. Rather, they make any sense. They don't make any sense at all, most of them. But they certainly make no sense in these people's personal jurisdictions. But they do it anyway. Because this philosophy is so ingrained in them now. And it's not just a bad philosophy. It is a national unifying force that is essentially uh, antithetical to a Republican form of government, to a constitutional republic. I mean, the constitutional republic is not supposed to have this French style of top-down legislation. You know, France, for its size, is pretty much ruled by Paris. It's not a great idea for them. But the idea that you would have something where every year more and more of the criminal activities and regulation and so forth comes out of Washington, D.C. and a country our size is just, it's silly. It's foolish and it's not really applicable to us in our present form. So doing it either is completely unsuccessful or you got to at some point start changing the form of government. It'd still be unsuccessful. It'll just won't be called, you know, a constitutional republic anymore. And the states will not have the kind of power that they should. That's why examples like DeSantis in Florida and what's happening in Texas, and I'm trying to think of a couple others out there uh, where they're really trying to uh, break free from this stuff. That is people trying to hold on to the kind of thing that everybody took for granted 40 years ago. I mean, we live in a time right now where ideas that nobody thought were arguable four or five years ago are now either wildly debated or you are shouted down and hounded out if you try and talk about them other than the prevailing narrative. It's shocking how fast things have changed. And not only do we have arguments about things that nobody was arguing about very shortly time ago, but uh, the repercussions for even arguing about them are ridiculous. Call it cancel culture, whatever you want to say. You, you can't have an open society if that's how you're going to treat things. So we've got to make sure that we show legislators, either local people in your city council, county commissioners, your state legislatures, your federal legislators, that you're paying attention. And that's why when things like these gun bills come out, things that you really are concerned about, and there's other things out there we ought to be concerned about, that you're paying attention and are going to react. You're going to let them know that you don't support it and that you're going to fight back at the ballot box uh, if they keep doing this kind of stuff because they count on you not doing that. They count on your memory being about 45 minutes long, and you have to let them know that's not the case. Uh, I vote, and I have a long memory, and I will be active if you keep pushing these buttons out here because I, I will have no choice. And that can influence legislation, which, of course, is why they don't want you to know about it. <laughs> it's a sad situation, I know. But it's important, and it's a good lesson. And sometimes I think we have to refresh our republic every so often. We have to dip back into what we know works, right? That's the whole idea of conservatism. Conservatism isn't reactionary, which is what you, the left would have you believe. It is an attempt to examine what we've been doing and conserve the things that work 
and dump the things that don't. It's all about conservation. I thought they were all in favor of conservation. That's what conservatives want. Say, look, we want to progress too. But the way to progress is look at the things that have worked and use that as our platform and then move forward. Not destroy the whole platform, things that have worked in the past, and just dump them and hope that somehow you can, with some tinker toys, build a whole new society, which is what some of these people seem to think. Conservatism is all about sounding out and figuring out what has worked and how far it has pushed our society. And we know what has you know, what's been successful. It's not hard to see. And go from there. Not stay static, like everybody wants to live in 1952. No, that's what they'd like to make people believe. No, it's just like, these are the things that worked. All right, let's solidify them. Let's bring them in. And this is our base. Let's try some other things and see what works. And the ones that do, we'll put into the base. And the ones that don't, we'll toss out. We now have a political class out there that wants to just destroy the whole thing and somehow reconfigure it. Like they're going to have the, the, the everything blown up and they're going to meet someplace in some hall and pretend like they're the new founding fathers and put together this, you know, this kind of thing that, a, you know, an eight-year-old would think was a nutty idea. And that's going to fix everything. But no, we, you know, we're not going to let that happen. Also, we, we have had some things because of your involvement. And when I was speaking about firearms, you remember that we had this uh, brouhaha a couple months ago, well, three months ago now, uh, where, you know, Visa, MasterCard, and Discover were going to, uh, you know, track gun purchases and so forth. Well, people heard enough about that, and they got uh, upset about it. And uh, Republican, they wrote their lawmakers, Republican lawmakers got upset, and their customers were upset. And so now, I mean, this week the story comes out that Visa, MasterCard, and Discover are pausing work on a code that would track gun purchases. That's a pretty good idea, this pausing on that, isn't it? And that's something that you folks accomplished by saying, that's enough of that, right? So there's a there's an example of what can work right there. And there are good examples of things that are going on. I mean, Elon Musk buying, tr- buying Twitter and turning these files over that shows this connection between the federal government and censoring speech is a good thing. I mean, I, I, you guys know that anyway, but I mean, it really is progress. And these hearings are having have just chilled you to the bone a little bit. And further, what we're seeing with the release of these January 6 tapes that Tucker Carlson's been showing and others all, all 14,000 hours of video that we didn't get to see. Now we're seeing things that not only were very different than the narrative, but were known to the people releasing the narrative and they didn't put it out there. Those are all good things. So that's because people like yourselves are putting pressure and pressure is what's going to make this thing get fixed. Talk to you next week.